Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the work that it does in, it, in us as we study it, as we memorize it, as we learn it. Lord, may not, this not be just some kind of intellectual exercise where we're learning a story, but we pray, God, that this would be something that changes our lives. I pray, Lord, that as we study this passage today, that we would see our great, great need for Christ, our great, great need for mercy, which is only found in Him. So may He be glorified and Your people sanctified as we study Your Word this morning for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 18. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 18, verses 9 to 15 today. Genesis chapter 18, verses 9 to 15, as we continue our study in the book of Genesis. Now, there's an American proverb that goes something like this, and you guys are probably familiar with it. Laughter is the best medicine. Is everybody familiar with that? Laughter is the best medicine. Everybody's heard it because it's such a common American colloquialism or, or proverb. And the, the funny thing is, I guess, that uh, studies have actually shown that statement to be very true. Studies have shown that laughter is actually very, very good for your health on a physiological level. Because on a physiological level, when you laugh, it releases chemicals and endorphins into your bloodstream that will relax the blood vessels. And on top of that, if you laugh hard, if you have a, a hearty laugh, uh, that reduces blood pressure and your heart rate. And I look at that and I think, you know, it really shouldn't surprise me or anyone that God would design us with a way that would give us joy, a joyful way to relieve ourselves of stress and anxiety on a physiological level. But here's a question for you. What makes you laugh? What makes you laugh? I mean, sometimes we laugh when, when something is ironic. Uh, sometimes you look at a picture and you think, oh, that's so cute. And it's so cute that you have to laugh at it. You kind of chuckle at it. Some of us like to laugh at sarcasm, myself included, or, or wittiness, right? Some people really love wittiness. And sometimes we laugh when it's entirely inappropriate to do so. The truth is that laughter is not always an appropriate response, which is something that I've kind of had to learn the hard way. There was this suspense thriller movie that came out in the early 90s. My wife laughs because she knows exactly where I'm going with this. There was this suspense thriller movie that came out in the early 90s. Uh, it, it wasn't a comedy. <laughs> the, the name of it isn't important. The name of the movie isn't important, but the genre is. It was a suspense thriller you know, when you go to a comedy, you expect to hear people laughing. When you go to a suspense thriller, you probably aren't expecting to laugh, and you probably get a little bit disturbed by somebody who would be laughing when it doesn't seem like something that would be so humorous. So I went to this movie, which starts off with this guy who's stuck in L.A. traffic, and it just sets off this chain of events. And I was busting a gut in the movie theater, and people are like turning around and looking at me, and I'm, I'm just cracking up. And the thing is, I, 
uh, I went to college in Southern California, so I had been in Southern California traffic. Stephen, you've been in Southern California traffic. Noel, you've been in Southern California traffic. So we know what it's like. And so, yeah, we do see probably a little bit of humor in that. I, you know, we know the frustration of sitting in LA traffic, but here I am laughing hysterically in this movie, but I was the only one in the theater, which was pretty crowded, that was laughing. If you've ever had this happen to you, if you've ever laughed in a moment which was completely inappropriate, you can not only relate to what I was doing that day, but you can relate to what Sarah experienced with God in the passage that we're going to look at today. Sarah laughed, and she laughed at something that was not funny. She laughed at a time that was completely inappropriate, even though she only laughed in the silence of her own heart. Now last week, in the passage leading up to this passage today, we looked at uh, being friends of God. And we talked about being friends with Jesus and how everyone thinks they'd want to be friends with God until you realize that He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our thoughts before we even are aware of the fact that we're thinking of them. He knows our hearts and the desires in our hearts, even if we're not completely aware of those things, or maybe we are, and we just would prefer to deny those things. But this turns out to be a problem for Sarah in the passage that we're going to look at today. So our passage is found in Genesis chapter 18, verses 9 to 15. And the central point that we're going to see in this passage is that God will often bring us to the end of ourselves in order that we may learn to more fully trust Him for what otherwise might seem impossible. Now in the previous passage, the Lord Jesus appeared to Abraham in the middle of the hottest part of the day while Abraham was just hanging out, resting in the shade of his tent. And Abraham's response, as we saw, was to immediately jump up, run over, and worship the Lord Jesus with three characteristics that we would be wise to imitate, humility, eagerness, and generosity. He gave the Lord the very best he had to offer, and he did it as quickly as he possibly could, and he did it with humility, a type of humility that we would be very wise to strive for. So our passage today is just going to pick up where we left off last week, with Abraham serving Jesus and the two angels who had accompanied him on this day before they went to pay a visit to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now there was actually very little dialogue that took place in the previous passage other than Abraham asking permission to serve Jesus and Jesus saying, go ahead and, and do it. But there's quite a bit of dialogue that takes place in this passage. So we start out with verses 9 and 10. Chapter 18, verses 9 and 10 say, they said to him, to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So it starts out with a question. And we have to remember that whenever the Lord asks a question, it's not that he doesn't have the information already. 
It's not that he doesn't already know. He's not doing it for the sake of learning something because he knows it all. He knows the past, he knows the present, he knows the future, and he knows all of these things exhaustively because he is the one who from eternity has decreed all things according to the counsel of his own will. So he has either caused or allowed all things which have passed, are passing, and will pass. So whether it was the Lord or the angels who asked this question, it's not explicit. We don't know who asks the question exactly. But there's a reason that this question gets asked. And that reason is not for the sake of gathering information or learning Sarah's whereabouts. Instead, it turns out that Sarah is actually right there listening. She's just inside the tent What's interesting, by the way, is that they call Sarah by her name, even though Abraham hasn't mentioned her name to them up to this point. He's talked to her. We saw her name mentioned, but only uh, when it was telling us that Abraham ran to Sarah and told her to bake some bread for the guests. But the guests would have had no way of knowing by natural means what her name was. Yet they, they know her name. And not only do they know her name, but they know her new name. We saw in the previous chapter that she was given a new name. Her name was changed from Sarai to Sarah. And they are completely aware of this new name. Now my best guess as to why this question is asked, it seems like the most logical reason, is because the Lord knew that Sarah was within earshot. And so so he uses this question not to gather information, but to gather her ear, to call her ear, to draw her attention to what was about to be said. Think about this for a minute. Abraham has been told that he would have an offspring how many times? How many times has he been told that they were going to have descendants? He's been told time after time after time again. And how many times has Sarah heard that they were going to have a child, even though her womb has been barren for the 90 years that she has been alive? So this is a promise that's been spoken to Abraham many, many, many times, and he has undoubtedly relayed this message to her. In the previous chapter, God confirmed that Sarah was going to have a child And who would doubt that he would have rushed home and told her at some point before he circumcised all the males in his household? He probably couldn't wait to tell her, yes, you're going to be the one. So Sarah had heard it all before from Abraham. And in her disbelief, at one point, she even gave her servant Hagar to Abraham as a second wife in order that he could have a child with her. To hear that God had promised Abraham and Sarah a child was not news to her. But she had only heard it from the mouth of Abraham up to this point. And so upon hearing her name being spoken by Abraham's divine guests, whether it was Jesus or the angels who were with him, she leans in. She hears her name, and so she leans in, and she starts eavesdropping on the conversation. And what she hears is the Lord Himself say, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. 
He wanted to get her attention. He got it. And how does she respond? What's her reaction to this incredible news that she would be, at 90 years old, she would be the one to bear Abraham an offspring? Let's continue, verses 11 to 15. We read, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. So we saw in chapter 17 that the Lord gave this exact same promise more or less, same time frame and everything, to Abraham. And Abraham's response to the Lord's promise to give him a child when he's 99 and his wife is 90 years old was what? It was to laugh. It was to laugh. Okay, so what was Sarah's response? It's also to laugh. Although she only laughs to herself. Or so she thinks. So we're reminded, first of all, immediately, verse, verse 10 there, verse 11 there, that Abraham and Sarah are old. They're beyond their childbearing years. It's as if the author is making sure that we understand this is chronological. It's not like this is a flashback to some earlier point in their life. This is happening now. And it's just like underlining the fact that these people are too old to have children. Verse 11 says, uh, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, her menopausal years are over. They're long behind her. It is physically impossible. It is naturally impossible for her to have a child at this point. And it's like the author is underlining it so that you don't miss the fact, so that the reader doesn't overlook the fact that these people are way too old to be having children. It is impossible for them to have children. And Sarah hears this promise, and she laughs only to herself, and she says to herself, now that my husband Abraham and I are way, way, way too old for this to happen, now he's going to say, now the Lord is telling us that I am going to have the pleasure of having a child. And she laughs, and she thinks that she's the only one who knows that she laughed. She only laughed to herself. But, there, but the Lord reveals that he was completely aware of her laughter as well. Now Abraham laughed when he was told the news, but Abraham wasn't rebuked. And yet Sarah gets rebuked here. She gets corrected here. Why? Why would Abraham not be rebuked, but Sarah get rebuked? Well, it's not because of misogyny. It's not because the Lord is a chauvinist. It's because the reason for their laughter was completely different. Abraham's laughter, was, it was a laugh that flowed out of a joyful and believing spirit, which was entirely appropriate, while Sarah's laugh flowed not out of a joyful heart, but out of a bitter heart, out of a little bit of resentment that she had toward this promise that had been made for over 20 years 
And she'd been hearing it over and over and over again. And her hopes had been up the whole time. But eventually, she lost confidence in the Lord's ability to make it happen. And at this point, it is physically beyond her ability. It is not within her power to be able to have this child. Now, I don't know if you've ever looked at it this way. But this is exactly the place that the Lord wants you and me to be in our walk with the Lord. He wants us to be in a place where we're not trusting in our ability. He wants us to come to the point where we realize how weak, how worthless, how useless the flesh is. He wants us to come to the point where where we see that we are just fragile. He wants us to come to the point where we see that when the flesh is strong and we're acting in our own ability, by our own power, it's actually a hindrance to our walk with the Lord. As I was meditating on this passage this past week, you guys know that Christina and I have been stricken by trial by fire, by by hardship and, and suffering over the course of the past two months. And so I stopped to think about what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119.71. He wrote this. He says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It was good for me that I might be afflicted. Why? That I might learn your statutes. Do you get how contrary that is to human thought? Do you get how strange that might seem? Do you, do you understand exactly what this means? It means that there are some lessons in life, some lessons in our sanctification, some lessons in our walk with the Lord that cannot be learned in your comfort zone. There are some lessons that can only be learned in adversity, in hardship in trials, in the weakness of the flesh. It means there are some ways that God wants to grow us that will require trial by some type of fire. So think back on your life. Think about the worst thing that's happened to you since you became a Christian. And and ask yourself, how did God use that situation or that circumstance or that time period in your life to teach you things that you could not have learned in your comfort zone, to teach you things that you couldn't have learned unless you were going through some type of hardship or affliction. Friends, it is so, it is so important for us to see the weakness of the flesh. Because once you've reached that point, once you are able to see how weak your flesh is, and you won't see that when you're comfortable, once you see how weak your flesh is, that is where you see how strong the Lord is. That's where you clearly get to see His power in your life. How else are you going to learn the weakness of the flesh? You're not going to learn the weakness of the flesh when you're able to do whatever it is you want to do. 
And see, it's easy to talk the talk. It's easy to say, well, you know, I've got a really strong faith and I can handle whatever life throws at me. Oh, really? Oh, really? Then you get some bad news from the doctor. Then you learn that your wife has some kind of illness that could kill her and you didn't even realize that you were facing this battle. Or fill in the blank. Life happens. Bad things happen. Bad things come our way. Life throws a pitch at you and there's no way for you to get out of the way. It's just going to hit you squarely. And that's where you learn the weakness of the flesh. You can't get out of the way. You just got to take it. And you see how weak the flesh is. But that's also where you get a front row opportunity to witness the goodness and the strength and the grace and the providence of God. So once you see, once you come to terms with the weakness of the flesh, what happens to you? What happens to us psychologically once we see that our flesh is weak? Our confidence in self is diminished. Our confidence in the flesh is lessened. And you're forced to rely on God in ways that you have never, ever imagined being forced to rely on Him before. And friends, what a glorious, wonderful thing that is. Because the person who trusts in Him or herself, in their own ability, in their own power, in their own strength, will only glory and boast in themselves. That's the way we're wired. If we're able, we get the credit, we get the glory. But the person who's brought to the point where they realize that they have no choice but to rely entirely, not just partially, rely entirely on God's providential grace in the moment, will glory in the goodness and the mercy of God. See, the way we work is that we want to rely on ourselves as much as we possibly can, and we don't want to rely on God. We don't want to have to lean on God until we really need to. And so we kind of keep Him in our back pocket. He's not exactly plan A. He's plan B for when we might need Him. But part of our sanctification is going to involve, it will always involve, breaking that tendency And learning to trust in God, learning to lean on God, learning to turn to God, not just in your moments of weakness, but at all times, not just when you've run out of options. In other words, it is dishonoring to God to make Him your plan B. So why do we do it? Why why do we make God our plan B rather than our plan A? It's for the same reason that Sarah laughs here. Unbelief. Unbelief. Now, I'm not talking about disbelieving entirely. I'm not talking about atheism or or anything like that. But the reality is that every single one of us struggles with unbelief to varying degrees. At the root of every sin is some type of unbelief and idolatry. So we all struggle with unbelief to varying degrees because we all sin. Now, maybe you've prayed for God to do something, 
Maybe you even prayed for something just small and something that that to everybody else might seem insignificant, something that should be simple for God to do and it didn't happen. And so you struggle with unbelief. Or maybe something did happen, but it was actually the opposite of what you were praying for. Maybe you experienced some type of loss. Maybe you went through some type of tragedy that caused you to wonder how or why God, who's all-powerful, would allow this to happen to you. Now there are at least three things that I want us to see about the nature of unbelief here. Three things that we need to understand about unbelief. The first thing that we need to understand is that all unbelief is sin. And I don't think any of us has even the slightest idea, the slightest clue of how offensive pride is self-reliance, autonomy, the tendency to look to ourselves rather than looking to the Lord first. I don't think any of us have any idea exactly how offensive this is to the Lord. But unbelief is sin. Why was it sinful for Sarah to laugh? Notice, by the way, that even Abraham doesn't know that she laughed. But the Lord did. Her thoughts her desires, her bitterness, it's all laid out before the Lord for him to see. So why was it sinful for her to laugh, even though she kept it to herself? Well, at the very least, to laugh the way that she did was to say that she didn't believe that the Lord could be trusted to do what the Lord had promised he would do. And to say that the Lord can't be trusted is to call him a liar. Now, most people wouldn't come right out and say that in, such, in, in, in so many words, that, you know, say that God is a liar. Maybe they would. But it's our actions, really, that reveal what we really think. And it's our actions that reveal our struggle with unbelief. And it's easier for us to believe people than it is to believe God. And that's a problem. Part of sanctification is learning to switch that around so that we do believe God. And we're not so inclined to believe man. Listen to what the Apostle John said in his, in his uh, first letter, his first epistle. 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. He said, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So he's saying, naturally, it's easier for us to believe man than it is to believe God. But as a Christian, as God's people, if we can believe the testimony of man, how much more, it's kind of that kind of argument, how much more can we believe what God says? To call God a liar, either directly or indirectly through our actions, is to deny His very nature. Not only does God speak the truth, but He is truth. He is truth. That is, at the core of His very being, it's who He is. He is the truth. Scripture tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. It's impossible for God to lie. So God can speak the entire 
universe into existence. He can create all that exists out of absolutely nothing but the power of His Word. But it's impossible for Him to lie. God can raise a dead man from the grave. God can give life to somebody who is dead. But it's impossible for Him to lie. God can reconcile even the vilest, most wretched, most deplorable sinner that you could possibly ever imagine. He can render them perfectly justified, forgiven entirely. But it's impossible for Him to lie. Now, this is actually the very opposite of us. Think about it for a second. We can lie, but we can't speak something into existence out of nothing. We can lie, but we can't bring the dead back to life. We can lie, but we can't reconcile sinners with God. Unbelief is just one way of expressing the thought that God is a liar. And so unbelief is actually a very, very serious thing. John Stott put it this way. He said, quote, Unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied, it is a sin to be deplored. End quote. So the first thing that we see about unbelief is that it is sin. Secondly, unbelief leads to other sins. In other words, you might call it a gateway sin. It, it leads to other sins. That's the way that all sin works, by the way. It doesn't just stay by itself. You can't just quarantine sin and say, I'm just going to have this one little thing. No, sin always leads to other sins. That's just the way that it works. Because unbelief is at the root of every other sin. In Sarah's case, what happens? Not only does she not believe the Lord, but when she gets called out on the carpet about it, what happens? She lies. She denies it. She lies right to the Lord's face. Sin has a way of multiplying and spreading in ways that we don't even imagine that it will. And friends, that is why we must learn not just to tolerate the small sins that we struggle with, not just to live with them and, and try to stuff them into, you know, into a corner of our lives that doesn't come out very often. No, we, we must learn to hate even our smallest sins, even the most seemingly insignificant sins, because they will lead to bigger and more significant sins. So number one, unbelief is sin. Number two, Unbelief is kind of a gateway sin. It leads to other sins. Thirdly, God does not take unbelief casually. Sarah tried to keep this sin to herself, laughing so quietly that nobody else would have ever known that there she was on the other side of this tent wall struggling with unbelief in the depths of her heart. But the Lord knew. God knew. And you might say, well, but she didn't act on it. She didn't act on, on this, this impulse. She, she did do everything that she could to restrain herself. Yes, she did. And good for her, but it was still sin. Because before God, every heart is open. Every desire is known. And every transgression is offensive. 
Now, Jesus taught us that murder takes place inwardly. Even if you don't actually go and murder somebody physically, if you have enough anger in your heart to call them all kinds of names, Jesus says you have murdered that person. And the same works with adultery. You don't actually have to go through with the act of adultery. If you look at somebody lustfully, you are guilty. Even if you have restrained that desire and haven't acted on that impulse. And our response might be to think, man, that's, that's just way too harsh. That's not fair. If we don't act on our desires, how can it be bad to have them? Because they aren't godly. That's why. They aren't God-glorifying. And so the idea that it's too harsh or it's unfair or that it's okay to have these desires as long as we don't act on them is a lie. Because at the root of those desires is unbelief. And God doesn't take unbelief lightly or casually. He doesn't even take the so-called small sins casually. And neither should we. And so the Lord's response is a rebuke to us. It's a rebuke to every single one of us in our struggle with unbelief. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a question that doesn't even need to be answered. It's a rhetorical question. He asks it because the answer is so obvious that you would have to be completely foolish to even think that you need to answer it. And it might be the most important the most straightforward rhetorical question in the entire Bible. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Think about it. If God can speak the universe into existence, how could we think that anything is too hard for the Lord? If God can remove the penalty of sin from even the most wretched of sinners, how could we think that anything is too hard for the Lord. Now not only do we see God rebuking Sarah here, but we also see grace in the way that he both exposes and corrects Sarah's transgressions. The reality is, she was looking to herself, she was looking to her flesh, the strength of her flesh, she was looking to her circumstances rather than looking to her Savior. In her mind, She's too old. It's impossible. In her mind, Abraham's too old. It's impossible. And this promise has been repeated so many times for so many years, she just couldn't bring herself to believe it anymore. But instead of taking away the promise, instead of removing the privilege of having this promised offspring, the Lord reiterates His promise. What grace? He says, I will be back next year and she shall, she shall have a son. He reminds her of His sovereign faithfulness, of His goodness, of His ability to do whatever He wants to do. And He reminds her that this won't be something for her to glory in. This will be something that will bring glory to God because it is impossible. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? We immediately get the idea that that is an absolutely ridiculous question. And if nothing is too hard for the Lord, how dare I 
ever struggle with unbelief. So I ask you today, what difficulties in life do you struggle to believe God for? What circumstances do you wonder if God is really in charge of, is really sovereign over? Maybe you struggle with believing the Gospel. Maybe you've heard the Gospel so many times, but you can't bring yourself to believe that God would actually be able to forgive you. You don't believe that He's actually able to reconcile you to Himself. Maybe you've stolen. Maybe you've really hurt somebody. Maybe you've even killed somebody. Maybe you've been unfaithful to your spouse. Maybe you've gained dishonestly. Whatever the case may be, you think you know this sin is too great for God to ever forgive. And if that's you, my question for you is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything... Too hard for the Lord. Or maybe you do believe the Gospel, but you realize that your faith is so small. And and you realize that there's a place that you want to be in your walk with the Lord, but your faith just isn't quite there yet. And so you realize that your faith is weaker and smaller than you would like it to be. Again, I have to ask, is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that faith is a gift, and as such, God can give faith to whomever He pleases. And so with that said, maybe, maybe your faith is small, maybe your faith is weak, because you haven't asked for a greater faith. Maybe you have not because you ask not. So have you asked God for a stronger faith? Have you pleaded with Him? to grow what little faith you have. And if a greater faith is what you desire, remember, keep in mind, Romans 10.17 says that faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the Word of Christ. What's that? What's he talking about there? He's talking about the Bible. He's talking about hearing it taught and studying it and memorizing it. So what aspects of your life do you struggle with unbelief in? What do you have a hard time believing that God is sovereign over us? It will be difficult for you to be weaned from your confidence in the flesh. But it is worth it. It may be costly, but nothing, nothing that is worth more than all the riches in the world is going to be cheap or easy. So God's grace is seen in the fact that He doesn't take this promise away from Sarah and Abraham. It's also seen in the fact that God would not only rebuke her laughter, but that He would bring her laughter. See, this isn't the only place that we're told about Sarah laughing. We'll see in Genesis chapter 21 in the account of her giving birth to her son Isaac. It says, And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? So Sarah would laugh. And she would laugh at a time that was appropriate. She will laugh again, but her unbelief will not be at the root of that laughter. Next time it will be 
a rejoicing spirit. Next time her laughter will flow from a heart that is rejoicing in the goodness and the mercy and the strength of the Lord rather than in her own ability to do things on her own because she will have experienced the goodness and the faithfulness of God to His promises and His purposes and His people. Sarah's unbelief would be turned to a strong faith. Hebrews 11.11 says, By faith, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered Him faithful who had promised. Her, Her unbelief would be vanquished. It would be turned to belief. She didn't find the ability to conceive in herself. She learned, rather, that God is faithful. Have you learned... Have you, in your walk with the Lord, have you learned to have that kind of faith in God? I have to warn you, that is part of the journey of being a Christian. But it's not an easy thing to do. It's difficult for us. It's painful for us to come to the point where we are forced, where we have no other option but to say, God, you are all I've got left. And so I lay it all at the foot of the cross, pleading nothing but the blood of Christ. And all I can do is trust that you are working all things for the good of your people and the glory of yourself. It's good when you come to the point where you can confess your inability to be self-sufficient. It is impossible for us to come to that point any other way. God must bring us through fires and afflictions in order to teach us to walk in His statutes. It is so difficult. It is impossible for us to reach the point where we see that the flesh is so, so weak. But nothing is impossible for God. At one point in his ministry, Jesus said that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is something that has confused scholars. It's confused the smartest people that we have or that claim to be of us. Why? Because they think, well, it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's the point. Jesus was confronting the idea that there would be Some people for whom salvation would be not so difficult, including wealthy people. And so Mark tells us the response of the disciples. He writes, And they, the disciples, were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Good question. If if it's difficult for even the, the, the high status type of people, who could possibly be saved? If it's impossible for them... How can the lower people, the people who don't have wealth, ever be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. That's from Mark 10, 26 and 27. Friends, it is impossible for man to be reconciled to God through human effort and achievement. There is only one way to be saved. And that is for someone to live a perfect, sinless life, never straying from God's will, even one time. 
But the problem is that we were all born sinners. Before we even learned to talk, we learned to covet. And as we learn to talk, about the same time, we learn to lie. And so it's impossible for man to be reconciled to God by our own greatest efforts. The only way to be reconciled to God is for someone to live a perfect life and to die a perfect death as your substitute in your place. Taking your guilt, taking your shame, taking your sins upon Himself. The person, that is, who lives a sinless life must stand in the place of a sinner as a substitute. And that is what Jesus did on behalf of everyone who believes in Him. Fully man, fully God. He not only died in our place, but He also fulfilled the demands of the law in our place. He did what was impossible by the greatest human effort, never straying for even one nanosecond from the will of God. By taking the sins of those who would place saving faith upon Himself, the Lord Jesus did what would have seemed impossible. He not only took away the punishment that was earned by all these sinners, but He remained a holy and just God who doesn't overlook even one sin. He took the punishment upon Himself, becoming not only the just, but the justifier of all who would place saving faith in Jesus Christ alone. In His death, He reconciled sinners to Himself without violating His perfect and holy and just nature. All to the praise of His glorious grace. So I end with this. Have you already decided what God can or cannot do in your life? Have you given up the fight against sin because there's some sin that is too great for you to overcome? Have you given up striving toward holiness? Have you given up striving toward Christ's likeness because it's impossible for you to do? I say to you, is anything, is anything at all too hard for the Lord? No. What He has promised, He will fulfill. And it might not happen the way we expect. It might not happen as soon as we expect. But God is faithful to His purposes. And so may He grant us the unflinching, unyielding, uncompromising faith to believe that He is sovereign. To believe that He is in control. To believe that there is nothing that's too difficult for Him. Let's pray. Oh Father, we are reminded of the weakness of the flesh. And we're reminded of the war that takes place within each of us between the Spirit and the flesh. And so God, we pray that You would give us the strength to endure. We pray that You would give us the faith of a child to see that You are able to do all things. We pray, God, that You would 
increase our faith. That we would believe you for the things that seem impossible to us. We pray that you would break us from any attitude that would exalt the self, exalt ourselves, rather than glorifying you. And if it's painful, God, give us the perseverance and the endurance and the wisdom to cling to Christ. Knowing, Lord, that He is more than enough. That all things are possible for You. Including turning sinners like ourselves into people who would live for the glory of Christ. And to that end, we pray that His name would be exalted and glorified in our lives. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.